Welcome to On Script's Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscriptstudy world. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Biblical World Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. Thanks so much for tuning in. I just wanted to say thanks at the outset to Jason Stark for producing this episode and also to Taylor Terzek for um, all his work as well in audio production for OnScript over the last year. So he's been a valuable member of the team. And so Jason and Taylor, we're really grateful to have both of you. Uh, for those of you who... Uh, are new to this podcast. We focus on the history, context, culture, and archaeology of the Bible. Um, we also have another podcast called OnScript, uh, which is focused on Bible and theology. So we hope you enjoy this episode. It's another one in our series on um, the natural world and the Bible. So enjoy the episode. Welcome back, Biblical World listeners. My name is Amy Balo, and I'll be your host today for another episode in our series, New Perspectives on the Bible and Nature. So today's special guest is Azan Yadin Israel, author of Temptation Transformed, the story of how the forbidden fruit became an apple. Azan is professor of Jewish studies and classics at Rutgers University in New Jersey, and he specializes in the study of Jewish Midrash. He is the author of several books, including Scripture as Logos, Rabbi Ishmael and the Origins of Midrash, and The Grace of God and the Grace of Man, The Theologies of Bruce Springsteen. Today we are going to talk about his most recent book, which just came out at the end of 2022, titled Temptation Transformed, the story of how the forbidden fruit became an apple, which is published with the University of Chicago Press. Um, I had the pleasure of reading his book in detail and reviewing it for Reading Religion, which is a website with reviews of books in the area of religious studies. And I wanted to bring him on because I feel like this is such an accessible and well-argued and well-researched book. Uh, and it truly is a testament to the ability of interdisciplinary work to help us clarify age-old questions of biblical interpretation. Um, and it's impressive in that it covers a lot of terrain in terms of time span, geography, and the media that he researched. And so I wanted to bring him on and to help us understand this, this you know, question of how in the world did the forbidden fruit become an apple? Um, so thank you very much for joining us, Azan, and pleasure to have you. Thank you for the invitation. I'm thrilled to be here. Um, so we like to start off uh, all of our interviews by asking people, how did you get here? Um, so your work is is very diverse, standing, spanning from biblical studies all the way to, to Bruce Springsteen uh, and the ideas that are in his songs. How did this come to be? How did you, uh, what's your background with the material? The basic academic answer is I did my undergraduate work at the Hebrew University and then I came to Berkeley for my PhD and I wrote my PhD under Daniel Boyarin um, in Rabbinic Midrash, as you noted. The broader answer is that I have always been drawn in different directions. While I was in graduate school, I did work a fair amount on uh, Plato and ancient Greek philosophy. And that's something that is still very much present uh, from, for me as a scholar through my affiliation with classics. So at Rutgers, I teach you know the P Plato courses and courses on the pre-Socratics. And I have sort of allowed myself to wander in ways that 
are idiosyncratic, perhaps. I think that they're good. Not it's not it's not everyone's cup of tea. Uh, but but I enjoy it. Some of the projects of a very specific context. The Springsteen book came after a very 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 long project on the rabbinic commentary called the Sifra, which is the commentary on the Book of Leviticus, which was an incredibly difficult task. Um, there isn't even a proper critical edition of the book. So I was mostly working with a 12th century manuscript, just very, very complicated and, and involved. And I, and I wanted something light and pleasant. So, you know, at certain points, it's like there's a psychological drive um, to do something. And, uh, you know, I had been listening to Springsteen for a long time, was always struck by the number of biblical allusions in his songs and thought to myself, maybe this is something worth exploring. And, you know, it turned out to be uh, certainly enough for a, for a book. But broadly speaking, I am interested in, in, in a wide range of issues. I've always tried to work uh, with different languages and keep up my language skills. I'm also the author of a series on, on language study. I have a series called Intuitive Vocabulary that draws on the historic relation between English and other languages to facilitate the study or the memorization of the uh, vocabulary of the foreign language. So basically by showing historical cognates, the foreign language is perceived by the English speaker as a little more familiar. Um, I've already published uh, a German volume and a Spanish volume, and the ancient Greek volume should be out next week. So that's also, that's a little bit exciting. That's about what I can tell you. I've just, you know, I've gone where my curiosity has led me and there are, there's a price to pay. You know, I'm not, uh, I've certainly not specialized the way many of my colleagues have, say, in Midrash. And so I'm not saying that this is the right way to do things. And I'm not saying that this is the best way to do things. It's just the best way for me. Right. Well, and it really has paid off in Temptation Transformed because all the language that you bring to it and the knowledge of history and, and, and knowing facility with manuscripts and all of those good things about material culture, um, including the the mass amounts of art that you looked at and, and then cataloged right. for us, which is a, a huge service to the Academy, I have to say. I know I've done some work on the Tree of Life and uh, just trying to chase down images yeah. which was a huge thing. So when I picked up your book, and I saw that you have something like a 90-page appendix uh, that catalogs all of the artworks that you know of that represent the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Little hearts started coming out of my head because, I, right? And, right? And then you turned right. it into a website as well. So there's also a companion website. I did, yeah, yeah. So it's um, treeofknowledgeart.com? Yeah. Tree treeofknowledgeart, yeah. I will tell you in parentheses that I originally thought to name the website forbiddenfruit.com. Turns out that's a terrible name <laughs> for a website. It does not draw Bible scholars, um, so it is indeed a little bit, a, a little bit of more of an awkward name. But um, treeofknowledgeart.com. Yeah, okay, right. and you may not want to go to forbiddenfruit.com. Uh, to, to the no, listeners, please don't. I don't recommend <laughs> okay. it. And neither does the podcast. I just want to oh, be great. clear about that. Okay, treeofknowledgeart.com. Okay, um, and so. How did you come across this project? Um, you're you're looking at this age-old question of how the forbidden fruit became an apple. How did you get there? So it's interesting. You know, when I came out of grad school, as I mentioned, I mean, most of my work, of course, was in Hebrew and Aramaic. 
um, because of the rabbinics, but I also was uh, interested in classics and Greek and Latin. And I basically instituted a, a, a practice of reading with a graduate student in the languages that I wasn't working on at the time. And I was uh, reading with a graduate student then at the University of Minnesota, which was my first appointment. Aaron Puchigan, who went on to become a poet and a translator. And uh, we were reading Augustine and the Confessions and very well-known passage where uh, Augustine is talking about the evil in the hearts of even children, you know, that human beings are corrupt kind of from the outset. And he talks about how he and his friends saw a sow in the field and they started for no real reason except their own inherent cruelty, pelting it with, and then he says, poma, uh, the Latin word poma. So, you know, I didn't, I was just, you know, sight reading and I translated poma as apples because of the French poem. In, in French, poem means apple. And I, you know, I just assumed romance from Latin, poem, apple. And, you know, Aaron rightly corrected me and he said, no, listen, this is actually, in Latin, it's a generic term for fruit. It has nothing to do with the apple per se. And that stuck with me. I had this little flash, not that I figured anything out, but that this was something worth exploring. The confu Did my mistake, did my mistranslation mirror a broader shift from generic fruit to apple that would explain why the forbidden fruit is in fact identified uh, with the apple. I didn't do anything with that because I was an assistant professor and I had to publish my tenure book and then I had to publish my second book. And that, you know, there was just, there's a, there's a long kind of dutiful period, <laughs> you know, in which you, you need to do certain things and you, that's the right thing to do. You, you, in fact, ought to do those things. But it always stayed with me as something that at one point I'd like to explore. Uh, in the meantime, as I noted, I had also improved you know, my language skills with the German book. I'm now working on the French version of this um, intuitive vocabulary series. And I became more and more comfortable with moving into what would turn out to be a, the study of a medieval theme. So maybe 10 years ago, I thought, let, let me just start looking at this topic. Not really working on it, but just seeing if there is anything there. And as I began kind of peeling away layers of when the apple became a prominent uh, kind of image and what happened and what changes occurred and so forth, I began to devote more and more time to it until ultimately I wrote the book. There is, I mean, you mentioned this in the book and kind of the first thing you have to do when you write a book like this is to address previous theories of how things happened, right? And so you talk about what, something that's called the Malum hypothesis, um, which is basically similar to what you had. It's like there's, people think that there was maybe a confusion between the word for, uh, yeah. So could you talk us through that and, and why you didn't find that satisfying? Yeah, yeah. Um, so the, Regnant theory of why the forbidden fruit became an apple is exactly, as you noted, the idea that the Latin word malum has two meanings. It means apple and it means evil. I mean, it's just, those are just homonyms in Latin. 
So the theory is everyone who opens the book of Genesis can see that the apple is not mentioned. It's just a generic fruit. Well, since Latin has this kind of play on words or these, these homonyms, malum evil and malum apple, and since theologically the forbidden fruit was the source of the expulsion from Eden, the fall of man, death, you know, all of these terrible things, what better fruit to say or to identify as the cause of this theological malum, evil, than the malum apple? Now, that theory has been around for hundreds of years. I mean, I found it in a text from the 1650s where someone's saying, you know, as it is well known, there are people who argue that this is why the forbidden fruit was in fact an apple. And today it's become common wisdom. It's just like received wisdom. People refer to it. You don't need to footnote it. You don't need to explain how you came. It's just well known that that's how the uh, forbidden fruit became the apple. The main problem with this theory is that uh, it has absolutely no substance. <laughs> it's a minor problem. Um, that is to say, if you actually start working through the Latin commentaries and, you know, I mean, I, I, I went through certainly the 50 or 60 most important Latin commentaries on Genesis. Nobody knows this theory. Nobody's making this pun. Nobody is saying, Hey, malum evil, malum apple. Maybe that was the fruit. This opens a whole nother topic that maybe we'll get to at the end, which is the kind of self-reflection, the scholarly self-reflection that this project uh, can, and I hope will, uh, instigate where you ask yourself, why has this theory maintained its standing, its standing for so long? But if we can, we'll get to that. In terms of the actual hypothesis, that's the hypothesis, and that's why I, I always found it a little bit too clever. In other words, it's a great midrash, it's a great commentary, kind of. But I never was convinced by the idea that a basically Latin scribe or monk or commentator writing some kind of interpretation of Genesis 3 would then give rise to this broad, global, cultural, artistic phenomenon. I think it's a theory that academics love because wouldn't it be wonderful if you know, we're sitting in our libraries, writing things down. We have this great idea. And the next thing you know, the world is listening to us. Uh, it's wonderful. It's a great fantasy. But I was never convinced that that was actually a proper historic explanation. Yeah, it never sat well with me either. And I, I never investigated it like you did. But, I, you know, I heard it a couple times in classes and various things I read. And it was like, oh, he's like, oh, okay. Um, because I'm pretty sure the Latin doesn't translate the fruit as apple, right? And so like... It does not. It, it would That's if right. it could, right? If they were doing that, then they would That's obviously right. do that, but they don't do that. So before the fruit became an apple, were apples known in Israel? Was there another fruit that people preferred? Did artists just not care? So like, this, is a, this, is a, this is a great question because it has a botanical aspect and it has a philological aspect. So the botanical answer is no. Apples were not, well, when I say apples, I mean domesticated apples. Domesticated apples, you know, as a food were not known in ancient, in biblical Israel. And that's that, you know, people, they know it 
came from somewhere, the, the Eurasian steppes. Botanists know, people who work in paleobotany can trace the spread of the apple, and it doesn't reach biblical Israel. The philological question, which is a little bit more complicated, is that the word, the Hebrew word tapuach, does appear in the Bible, and that is the word that today means apple in modern Hebrew. However, all indications are that that's not what it meant in biblical Hebrew. So it's a little bit complicated because people read the text and see the word tapuach, and they assume it means an apple and that apples are in the Bible. That is due to the modern Hebrew meaning. It's also due to the fact that that word was on some occasion translated into the Latin word malum in the Vulgate. So basically no one knew what tapuach meant. It's still not clear. But the Vulgate translates it as malum, the Latin word for apple, or at least in some places it does. And then it becomes kind of the go-to meaning of tapuach. And that's something that's obviously philologically incorrect, but historically has had a tremendous impact. So what fruit are we probably talking about? Like, um, would maybe like a fig or grapes? Like, does it even matter to most interpreters? Well, it was, it, it's not a fig or a grape because there are established words for right, those. You know, you, right. you probably, there are various, uh, there are various theories about what the tapuach might be. I actually give a little survey uh, in the book of various hypotheses. Mm. Uh, what's clear is that it's a rich and tasty fruit because in the Song of Songs, the uh, first of all, the female lover says that my beloved is among the men like, or among the boys, like the tapuach among the trees of the forest. So it's clearly... It's a lovely fruit. It's a lovely fruit. Yeah. And then uh, later in, uh, and she says also it's its fruit was sweet to my taste. So we know that it's a tree fruit and it has a pleasant odor and it's it, it tastes good. So there's a lot of, there, there are a lot of criteria kind of, there are a lot of kind of clues to its identity, but it hasn't been definitively established yet. So thank you. So we now, we now know that they could not have been thinking about fruit, a certain apple or anything like that. And this is probably one of those cases in, in Genesis where ambiguity is there on purpose, right? Um, and so like, it doesn't, it really doesn't want you to associate the fruit with anything in particular, Absolutely. right? Because that's not the point, right? So one of the things, now I want to get into your alternative theory, right? Um, and so yes. what you did your research on. So one of the things I really appreciate about your book, and here I'm going to quote you a couple times, is that your book challenges the assumption that scholars ought to explain religious phenomenon by means of other religious phenomena, um, rather than the mundane realities of experience. Um, and as you summarize, while scholars have sought to explain the apple's rise in theological terms, going back to the Malum hypothesis and, you know, apple equals evil and all these kinds of things, um, you say that it was actually an unintended consequence of two distinct historical developments. The first being a series of semantic shifts and the second being the proliferation of fall of man narratives in the European vernaculars. You ultimately end up pointing to 12th century France as the beginning of the association yeah. of the fruit with an apple, and then draw a lot of evidence from art history and linguistics uh, to support your case. And so 
Can you tell us, like, how did you get to 12th century France? Like, why 12th sure. century France? Well, I mean, the starting point was, in a way, the Malum hypothesis, which we just mentioned. And in exploring that hypothesis, I found, first of all, that it wasn't attested. Um, I also found that there was a very rich tradition of alternate fruit. In other words, figs, grapes, pomegranates, many other fruit were proposed as potential forbidden fruit, but not the apple. And I ultimately, in tracking down the Latin sources, ended up with this very difficult conclusion, which was that even as late as the 14th century, the Latin commentators didn't even know that the apple was one of the candidates. In other words, you'd find very late commentaries. In other words, the, 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 Latin, the Latin commentary tradition basically begins to fizzle out uh, in the 14th century. You find these very uh, late commentaries saying, well, there are those who say that the forbidden fruit is a fig. There are others who say it's a grape, but we're not sure. They don't even list the apple as one of the fruit that's out, one of the species of fruit that's out there that people are identifying with the, you know, with the, 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 the forbidden fruit. So what are we going to do at this point? Because not only has the Malum hypothesis not resulted in anything that, that, that can help locate this transformation, it actually suggests that they didn't even know that the, that the apple was the forbidden fruit at all, or that anyone was making that claim. In other words, not only does it, is, not only is it the case that we don't know why it became the apple, as far as the Latin commentators are concerned, they don't even know that it did become the apple, for whatever reason, malum hypothesis or otherwise. So I had to shift gears at this point. Um, the texts were not yielding any results. And I thought, why don't I start looking at the iconographic evidence and see when the apple appears. I mean, look, we live in the 21st century. We know the apple becomes dominant. We know the end of this story, as it were. So when does this begin? At what point? So that's when I started looking at the art historical evidence. I have to confess that when I started this project, I thought that this segment of it was going to consist of me reviewing the two or five or 10 books that art historians had written on the forbidden fruit. To my shock, it turned out that the number of books that had been written on the topic was zero. So I had to devote, you know, another year, basically, I mean, you alluded earlier to, the, to how difficult it is to track down images when you mentioned uh, the tree of life. So yes, I mean, this, this theme proliferates medieval iconography and Renaissance iconography. And it was a lot of work. I ended up finding, you know, just under 600 images, not just of the fall of man, but fall of man images where you can identify either the fruit or the tree. And that's where 12th century France comes in. Because it is at that point that the apple first appears. So up to then, you have the, the, the art, you have a, a kind of uh, congruence between 
the iconographic material and the textual material, with the images being of grapes and figs and pomegranates and so forth. And suddenly in 12th century France, the artists begin representing the fruit as an apple. Within 50 years, it's the dominant fruit. In other words, it has marginalized the fig and the grape, etc., even though they have hundreds of years of tradition, they have hundreds of years of standing, they are very in very short order dispatched with. And from France, it spreads out to England, to Germany, to the Low Countries, but it does not spread to Italy. So now, with the iconographic material, we have a different set of questions. We don't have an answer to why the forbidden fruit became an apple, but at least our questions are historically situated. Why did the forbidden fruit first appear as an apple in 12th century France? Why did it marginalize all the other um, candidates, the other fruit that had been proposed? Why did it spread so quickly to Germany and England and the Low Countries? And why did it fail to spread into Italy? Yeah, so that's a lot of questions. And so I want to ask you all of those um, <laughs> because you do offer some answers <laughs> to, to most of those in your book. So was there, was there a particular moment, though, where you felt like, ah, I have it? Like you understood what was happening? There was a moment like that, yes. There, there, were, there were a few moments like that. Um, first of all, the Latin sources, just spending, um, you know, I spent at least a year just reading Latin commentaries. That's, you know, that's all I did. And um, the more I read and the more convinced I became that there was no malum-malum hypothesis, in other words, that the malum-malum hypothesis really didn't hold water, that was a great, that was, you know, a great moment in terms of saying, you know what, this project may have legs. The more exciting singular moment was, had to do with the spread of this fruit to Italy. I, I, I can't, you know what, I can't really explain it until we go over the linguistic stuff. Mm -hmm. But, so can we bracket this question and come back to it? Absolutely. As soon as I explain the language stuff or we go over the language stuff, because mm -hmm. it's, it has to do with that. Yeah, yeah, let's go ahead and go there. Um, so... Tell us how this all happened. Okay. So, so right. So how did this all happen? So um, the short answer is it happened because of language change, language change in the vernacular and not in Latin. And this goes back, Amy, to what you said earlier about not looking for it necessarily in high culture um, or in theological context, but rather in the lived reality of the people of that time. We know that Malum means Latin, we've talked, it means apple in Latin, we've talked about that. But we also know that that wasn't the word that was used to describe the forbidden fruit. Rather, the word that was described, that was used to describe the forbidden fruit was the Latin term pomum. Pomum is a Latin word for tree fruit. Generic term means all kinds of fruit in classical Latin. However, something interesting happens in the transition from Latin to Old French. So, you know, Old French is basically the Latin dialect of Gallia, of, 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 of Gaul. And like all Romance languages, it derives most of its vocabulary from Latin. However, for reasons that are not 100% clear, though probably has to do with the play on words of Malum, Apple and Malum Evil, the Latin word Malum did not find its way 
into Old French. In other words, there's no Old French word that derives from the Latin word malum. Again, probably because they didn't want to say, oh, you know, give me a pound of evil, you know, at the marketplace or something like that. So for a while, the word pomum meant fruit generically in Old French or the descendant of pomum in Old French. Pom meant fruit. But over time, because of the absence of a proper word for apple, the word pomum began to change its meaning. It began to narrow. The semantics of the word began to narrow, and rather than referring to a fruit generically, it began to refer specifically to one species, the apple. Now, why is that important uh, for our investigation? Because all of the earliest references to the forbidden fruit in Old French literature, and that means first and foremost translations, but not only. The Fall of Man was a very, very widely referenced uh, theme. So you find references to Adam and Eve in Old French histories, which inevitably began with Genesis, uh, Old French poems, Old French stories, just all throughout Old French literature. The vast majority of these texts refer to the forbidden fruit as a palm, which at the time meant fruit or at least probably meant fruit. Early on, it meant fruit. However, over time, and as the word pom began to narrow, and rather than refer to a fruit in the general sense, it began to refer to apple, all of those texts were, in the most straightforward and unreflective way, interpreted by their readers as referring to an apple. So if you have a 13th century Old French translation of the book of Genesis, in it, Eve gives Adam a poem. And there's no question that this translator, who's obviously translating the Vulgate and knows Latin and knows what pomum means in Latin, this translator intends poem to mean fruit, just as pomum does in classic Latin. But once that shift occurs, any reader of Old French who is looking at the biblical text will understand the Bible to be saying Eve gave Adam an apple. Moreover, anyone who hears a sermon, in other words, it, if, 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 if you're not literate and you're not, you know, you don't have a copy of Genesis, which of course was a very rare thing in medieval France. Not only, only very wealthy people owned texts like that, but you would hear a sermon at the church. And the local priest who knew the story in Old French would say, Eve gave Adam a poem. Or whatever, wherever you came across this, in stories, in poems, those simple statements were now interpreted as Eve gave Adam an apple. One of the wonderful results of this, of this work in terms of uh, kind of the interdisciplinary force of it is that the book can actually map out the artistic change and the semantic change. And you can show that the two are juxtaposed. 
at the basically at the moment where palm apple becomes the dominant meaning, displacing palm fruit, that's when the iconography takes this apple turn, and suddenly you know the apple appears in all of these uh, French illustrations, stained glass windows, everything. Everything becomes an apple. A similar transformation occurs in English and German, that is to say Middle English and Middle High German. I did not know this when I started the project, but apple in English used to be a generic term for fruit as well. And it too, probably under the influence of French, um, narrows to mean what we mean by apple, that particular species. Same thing happens in Middle High German, and this process repeats. You know, the artistic representation of the forbidden fruit becomes an apple. The process does not occur, the linguistic process does not occur in Italy. Because the Italian word for apple, mela, is a derivative of Latin malum, and it just never changes. It was never a generic term for fruit. It never narrows. And in fact, the Italian artists continue representing the forbidden fruit as a fig for hundreds and hundreds of years after that shift has already occurred in France and in Germany and in England. So you can really see that the linguistic change is, uh, it kind of initiates the introduction of the apple and then at the very least lays the foundations for its acceptance in other places as well. I love this work because it's not, it's also like all of the work that you did to get to this point, but um, it's just, it's so mundane, right? At the same time, because it's, uh, it's just that language changes. Uh, an another generation moves on that doesn't know the older interpretation. And voila, you have like, this new interpretation that just like catches fire all over Europe um, yeah, doesn't make yeah. it south of the mountain range, you know, for some reason. That's right. And it's just, That's right. it's just so every day. Um, yeah. But yet, you know, for all these hundreds of years, people are like, oh, it must be some theological leap that people were making to go from like the word evil sounds like the word for apple. But it's, it's right. not that at That's all. Right. It wasn't, it wasn't that sophisticated. It was it was just that time moved on, right? Well, it wasn't even biblical. You know, that's part, it was, th this whole shift is indifferent to the book of Genesis. You know, the words just changed and that meant that people went to the market and asked for a poem and it meant an apple and that's it. So it really is this, this you know, people who are working in Bible studies and are like looking at this as a biblical issue um, and, look, that's how we're trained. I mean, I'm not, uh, I, I live in this world. I'm familiar with it. Of course, that's in a way our go-to assumption, but we have to be careful because it's clearly not a necessary condition. We have to be open to looking in other ways. So yes, absolutely. It, it, it starts somewhere else. It's a completely mundane linguistic shift. These shifts happen in language all the time. The meaning of words is constantly expanding or contracting. That's just the way language changes and evolves over time. And as a completely kind of secondary or tertiary effect, yes, we ended up with this incredibly central biblical image of the forbidden fruit as an apple. Right, and, and it also highlights, I think, the the newness of our questions of trying to connect the biblical text to the actual ancient land. 
of Israel, right? Because like all of these interpreters that are looking at the apple don't even ask. Was it really? Were there apples was it in even ancient possible? Israel, yeah. right? Yeah. Right. Or was it really like that wasn't even a question anyone was caring about? Um, that's something that we care about now, but most interpretation wasn't worried about, was worried about other things. Well, that's sure. That's look, that's just the power of the historical and philological approach, which is trying to see things in their context. And that is absolutely, you know, a development of the last few centuries and it's completely novel. Yeah. And, and, and very exciting in a way, what I'm suggesting is that that will get us at the very least to understanding the biblical text and what was possible then but we need a, a much broader um, toolkit for at least some of the questions that we think of as biblical, but may in fact be much broader and require, as you said, an interdisciplinary approach. Um, look, I mean, I think this is one of the reasons the Malum hypothesis has survived as long as it has, despite the fact that it has absolutely nothing to recommend it. Uh, nothing, in other words, philologically speaking, and that is that in order to propose this new hypothesis, you do have to, you have to bring together these different disciplines because, you know, without doing the Latin work on the Malum hypothesis, you wouldn't know that that was incorrect and that there was even a question. And then without doing the iconographic work, you wouldn't know that the apple first appeared in 12th century France. And then without doing the work on the vernaculars, you wouldn't have any way to connect the semantic shift to the appearance of the apple in art. So all these things have to be brought together. And, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a challenge. That's a difficult, it's a difficult project. Um, and it's just a diff difficult approach. Yeah, and it really is the kind of project that you could really only do in this, this time in history. For anyone in, in the past to be able to access all of these commentaries, um, all these languages, um, the art. I mean, art is like, you know, with the internet now, it's like... You don't have to get huge funding to jump Absolutely. around the world. You can like research a lot of things just from your Absolutely. Own Look, first of all, I could never, you could never do this. You could never do the amount, I mean, 600 images. And those are just the ones that were relevant. You know, I looked at hundreds of other images that just didn't, didn't pan out. You know, you couldn't see the fruit or you couldn't see the, what the, what the tree was or the leaves or what have you. I mean, this was a, this was work that could only be done with databases. And I have to say that there are some institutions, the, the Bibliothèque Nationale in France, the French National Library, the tools that they have provided are just astounding because they have a specific search engine for images in all of their uh, manuscripts. So you can look up, you don't even have to go through all the manuscript itself, you can look up a theme and the Bibliothèque Nationale website will show you all the pages of all the illustrated manuscripts that deal with that theme. I mean, just to go through those manuscripts on your own, if you're just flipping through and, you know, looking for stories of the forbidden, stories of the fall of man and images of the forbidden fruit, that would be a 30-year project in and of itself. So absolutely, I, it's not big data. You know, it's, this is not a big data project, of course, because we're talking about rel relatively small numbers. But in terms of humanities work, where often we're looking at a text or the interrelation between two texts or something like that, it's kind of like medium data. You know, you have to be able to look at a few thousand images of which 600 are going to be relevant 
And that's something that you really couldn't do without these technological tools. Yeah, and so it really is a, a project that, um, you know, obviously it's been centuries in the making because people have wondered this for a long time, um, but it, it literally couldn't be done until until now. So I'm glad that you picked, picked right. it up That's and made right. it happen. Uh, and you were <laughs> right. able when, to when the time was right. type it out and print it and all that good yeah. stuff. And I can tell you now about the aha moment, if you'd like. Yes, let's go for that. You know, now we've talked about the language stuff. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that was very troubling to me was that I said that it didn't, that the apple didn't appear in Italy. But in fact, I simplified it a little. There, there are Apple representations in Northern Italy, in Milan and in, in other areas uh, in the North. And I was always struggling with that because it didn't fit my hypothesis. You know, it, if the language change was going to be one of the determining factors for the forbidden fruit becoming an apple, then an Italian didn't undergo that change. Then why were there Apple images in Northern Italy? So I, you know, I struggled. This was just an issue. This was just a problem that I had to figure out um, or rethink my hypothesis. It was going to be one or the other. And at some point I started looking at the linguistic landscape of medieval Italy. And it turned out that what, I had thought of as Italian was actually just one of the variants of medieval Italy. In other words, it's basically what we call Italian as Tuscan. And um, the northern regions actually have very, very different, I mean, we can call them different dialects, but they're really kind of different languages. Uh, Piedmontese and Milanese. And as I was reading up on them, it turned out that they actually belong much more closely to French than they do to Tuscan, to Italian, what we call Italian. So I got, I started getting these dictionaries of Milanese and Piedmontese, and they all have the word for apple is pom or pomo, not mela, like in Tuscan. In other words, they, the same shift from Latin pomum to the vernacular pom or pomo was taking place in the north just as it was in France. And when I saw that, I was like, oh my God, this is, this is great. Because even the things that looked problematic, even the things that looked like they were counterexamples, actually fit this pattern beautifully because it's the same correlation between semantic change and artistic, and artistic change. In other words, Pomo is becoming is apple, and the forbidden fruit is being represented as an apple. That was my aha moment. So you had a, a several throughout the process. It sounds like um, I like that part of, of research because like you get stuck in these problems, right? And then all of a sudden something kind of breaks open, and like a little bit of light shines in, and then you just aha, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and you just have to hang with the problems. You know what I mean? You have to just let them be problematic right? and see if you can do something with that. And yeah, it's great. Yeah. There's um, a, a bit of advice that my advisor gave me once upon a time. And he said, our, our, our job usually isn't to def- definitively answer something. It's usually to move the conversation forward. And so I've always felt like, okay, well, if I've contributed to the solution to the problem, even if I didn't solve it. Right. Um, so even if you had stopped there, yeah. um, it would have been still a great contribution, but you were, you unlocked it. Um, or it was presented to you, however you want to frame it. Right. No, absolutely. Look, this is, 
when you're doing this kind of project, especially when so many, so many of these areas were new to me, I mean, this was the first time I'd worked with medieval Latin sources, the first time I'd worked with art history, you know, I definitely kind of felt like I was being led by the sources rather than I was doing something. Um, of course, you have to do, you do have to put it all together. So I'm not saying that there's no role for the scholar, but it's definitely like the sources were giving me something, which was, which was wonderful. Um, you know, and, and again, I think it's hopefully a good, a good model for bringing, bringing in work and insights from different fields and hopefully finding ways in which they illuminate questions, problems, historical developments in, in, in new ways. Um, so as we're we're getting toward the end here, I want to make sure that we um, kind of tie everything up in a bow with a few other questions. So I'm just always struck by the the longevity and really the cultural power that this image has had um, of the fruit with um, you know the forbidden fruit as an apple, and not just in interpretations of Genesis, but just in general, um, the apple has become really symbolic of something that is taboo or forbidden, um, especially when it comes to like sexuality yeah. and things like that. As you um, mentioned, uh, do not go to that, the Forbidden Fruit website. Uh, I'm sure it has something to do with that. Exactly. Um, <laughs> not having looked, so I'm just going to go ahead and assume. I fear you're correct. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think the image has expanded and endured the way that it has, even though we now know that it's, in, it's incorrect um, and we've known that for a while? Like, why, why is it still there? Well, I mean, in one sense, the, the question has to do with the disconnect between scholarship and the broader cultural artistic world, which is, you know, we know a lot of things. Um, we know a lot of things. We know a lot of things about biblical material. We know a lot of things about how things have changed. And they don't make it out. You know, they don't make it out into the broader world, or at least not in ways that are kind of definitive or certainly Certainly, there's a very long lag many times. But it's also a question, a cultural question that you're asking, which is, why did the, why did the apple become so prominent? And I think, you know, part of it is that the Bible has become, the, the, the reception of biblical stories, at least for many, you know, non, non-Orthodox, non-traditional readers, has gravitated towards those moments in the biblical text that are a little bit subversive or at least offer the possibility of subversion. And of course, the story of Adam and Eve and the, the, the realization that they're naked upon eating the forbidden fruit and kind of the idea of the introduction of, of, of sexuality there and just the, the broader idea of forbidden knowledge has proven to be very well, appropriately enough, tempting. So the um, apple understood in that context as the forbidden fruit has indeed become just so, so dominant because it is, I think for many people, kind of like this exciting, almost paradoxical biblical image, which is like, it's a biblical image, but it's also a forbidden image at the same time. And so there's some kind of draw to it and um, it just kind of, I can't, I can't help but to think of this in light of a bunch of other things. So my work is sort of, I guess, anthropologically inclined to like, look at what this all says about humans. Right. Um, and so for me, this really stood out as like uh, an example of people 
trying to make meaning. Um, and not just like in terms of the, the actual translations of what the words mean. Um, but I think part of its staying power is the fact that like apples are part of our lives, right? You know, yeah. um, we can, we have the option to get them at the grocery store. Like a lot of people have them right. in their home, um, whether they, whether they actually eat them or not, or they end up in the trash is maybe another question. But if you're, so if you're like, have that interpretation in mind, then every time you see an apple, right. there's at least part of you that recalls the story, right? And so it has, it, it helps us like connect the meaning of the text to our daily lives. Right. It makes it makes these kind of biblical religious stories part of our everyday life in a very kind of tactile way. Right. So in, in, a, in a way, like the actual word of the Bible, which is not apple, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. Because it's it's more of this like this meaning, right? This meaning making kind of process. Um, so were, were there any things like that that you, you were thinking? Yeah. Um, I mean, well, I was just going to say that there's always there's the text. And, you know, a lot of people tend to think of the text as just the bearer of meaning, but in fact, it, it isn't, you know, the, the meaning is created in the, in, in the community that receives the text so that even though philologically and paleo botanically, of course, the forbidden fruit was not an apple. So what? There's this millions strong reading community probably billion strong reading community that understands the forbidden fruit as an apple and that drives the reality of people's engagement with the with the bible and and with apples much more strongly than the kind of philological reality of the meaning of tapuach so yeah absolutely it's it, it's definitely a way of of looking at how the bible is lived rather than interpreted in a you know in a philological way Right. And so um, I guess my maybe maybe second to last question is, um, is there anything other about the book that you wanted to make sure that people understand, like big picture wise? Like, what did this all teach you about meta questions about Bible and, and interpretation? Well, I think, first of all, one thing I would point out is that the book is kind of written like a detective novel. So people who like detective novels might find it interesting. It basically... There is, I mean, it's not a crime to think of the forbidden fruit as an apple, but there's an event and there is someone who's already been kind of established as the person responsible for this. In other words, the Malum hypothesis. And the book kind of tries to, in a detective-like way, prove that that's actually a false accusation and show who the real culprit is, as it were. So that's just a fun thing. And that it's a short book. You know, it's nice, it, it's important for people to know because that's sometimes a good thing, you know, um, something that you can pick up and just go through without too much commitment of time. Um, in more broadly, in terms of what it teaches us, I, I think it's the most important point is the one that we've already discussed, which is the interdisciplinary nature of of scholarship and of the ways in which this kind of work can illuminate new new insights um it's it's a huge challenge it's a huge challenge as knowledge is proliferating and as the potential connections between different fields are are, are growing it is a challenge for us as scholars to to train ourselves and to train future scholars to be able to do this work either themselves either by themselves going in, going in these various directions 
or by creating the kind of institutions that will foster this among scholars, which really is something that we don't do enough of. Um, so that, from an academic pers perspective, I think would be my main takeaway. Yeah, and also um, to also go back and, and highlight something we already said is that the, the willingness to look at the everyday and not not just be stuck in theological explanations or like, you know, kind of high level explanations for why things happen. Sometimes it's just languages move right. on, people, generations change, time moves on. Um, sometimes it's just that simple. That's right, because the world around us changes and we can't be always stuck in saying, well, this is a biblical phenomenon, therefore it must be a biblical or theological or religious explanation. Right. So now that Temptation Transformed is published uh, and, and getting good reviews, what's what's next for you? What are you working on? Um, I am working on two, two main projects right now. Um, one is not in Jewish or religious studies. Um, I've long been interested in um, one of Plato's dialogues uh, called the Timaeus, uh, which is a dialogue in which Plato talks about the creation of the world. Um, and I am writing a book on that. And uh, the other project is a little bit more complicated methodologically. Um, I'm, I'm basically working with models established by the subfield of linguistics called uh, contact linguistics. Uh, that is to say, the part of linguistics that studies how languages behave when they're in contact with other languages. I'm trying to develop methodological tools that are based on those findings and insights that could be applied to cultural contact more broadly. So the idea is to write uh, a book that's a series of studies probably focused on late antique rabbinic and Greek uh, interactions, rabbinic pagan interactions that demonstrate how insights from contact linguistics can be applied to cultural contact more broadly. Oh, so those sound um, really different from one another, but also very helpful for different fields in the academy. So you are continuing to diversify your work, uh, but language is always there. Language is the kind of the linchpin of everything you do, it sounds like. Language is always there. Um, so it's been a pleasure to have you on, Azan. Uh, thank you so much for your work and for coming and joining us today. Um, so again, for our listeners, Azan's book is Temptation Transformed, the story of how the forbidden fruit became an apple. Um, so thank you very much. Thank you so much, Amy. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to OnScript's Biblical World podcast. If you enjoy the show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study donate. Until next time, keep digging.